Thank you so, so much. We love you this afternoon. And we know, Jesus, that you are with us. That your heart is with us. That you are with us in every aspect. We don't have to fend for ourselves this afternoon. We can look to you, recognizing that you feed those who are hungry. And we are hungry for you, Lord. We want to be able to worship you in purity. We want to be able to honor you with our lives. And we want to be able to impact this generation in the way that the kingdom of God should. Lord, we want to be able to bring church to work. We want to be able to make a difference in our world. And we're asking you to give us some insight into how you go about doing that in us and through us. We love you. We thank you. We bless you. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Praise God. <laughs> God bless you. Okay, so we are in the book of Matthew and the 17th chapter, right? Now, I'm going to, because of time, I'm just going to kind of jump around from Matthew 17, Matthew 16. We're going to be in and out of those two chapters throughout. And most of it, I'm simply going to paraphrase from the text. But I do want to read one portion of it. A portion of scripture, you ever read a portion in the scripture? And because you know all of the scripture is inspired and every word comes from the heart and the mind of God. You know, you, you thank God that every word that's in it is in it because it's God's word, right? But there are times when there's something that's said that breaks your heart. Yeah? And you wish that that didn't have to be said. You almost wish that you could expunge that portion of scripture from the scripture because you just don't like the thought that this reality, that particular reality, exists. Now I'm going to read to you that statement, a statement that we, we want to expunge from not the text of scripture, but we want to expunge from reality. We don't want it to be a part of our existence. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about how we can take this out of our existence. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. In Matthew 17, 14, it says, And when they came to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him, saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely. For he is often thrown into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. That's something that we want to see expunged from our lives. We don't want to be spoken of in such a manner because this is a generation where we see young people, for instance, being tossed to and fro, right? From one extreme to another extreme. In a sense, from the water to the fire and back and forth again. And people are beginning to look to us. They're beginning to look to the church. And the last thing we want is it to be said that when they came to us for help, that there was nothing that we could do. Now, I'm not saying that every day we should be walking down the street performing signs and wonders and miracles, even though I believe in signs and wonders and miracles, and I believe that they happen in our generation. But what I'm saying is we can have an impact on this generation 
so that a generation of young people who have been tossed to and fro, who go from one extreme to another extreme, can find hope in the house of the Lord. Now, the reason why I say this particular portion of Scripture is such a sad portion of Scripture is because what happened prior to it. Now, prior to this, in chapter 16, Jesus is asking his disciples at a certain point. He's saying, who do people say that I am? Who do they say the Son of Man is? And they begin to say, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, and so on and so forth. You know, some say you're, you know, John the Baptist, you know. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up under the power of God. Remember, Jesus said that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He steps up under the power of God and says, you are the king. You are the Christ. He recognizes him to be the son of the living God, right? Now, at the same time that Peter calls Jesus the king, Jesus says to Peter, I am giving you the keys to the kingdom. Right? Now, if you look at this text in another one of the Gospels, the man comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, heal my son. And the first thing he says is, if you can do anything, for anything is possible to him who believes. And in this particular text, he will say, you will be able to say to a mountain, be ye henceforth removed and cast into the sea, and nothing will be impossible to you. So, he is saying, yes, you're right, I am the king, but I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. Which means, as he said in another place, all authority is given unto me, therefore go and make disciples. So he's saying to Peter that you have been given the power by the king to act on his behalf and to act in his name. So with that kind of power, the story begins, right? Now, one of the things he says to Peter is, whoever sins you remit are remitted, whoever sins you retain are retained. And basically what that means is, well, some people look at it and they say, well, it has to do with church administration and you can, you know, you can express some church discipline within the church and so on. And that's true, but the kingdom of God is broader than the church. In other words, the church should impact the world, which means we should, as Christian people, not just have authority in these four walls, right? But that our authority should extend outside of these walls so that when we run upon a young person who's being thrown from the fire to the water, we've been given authority by God because we acknowledge him as king to exercise his authority in his name for his glory, for his purposes. So after Jesus reminds Peter that what he said was based on a revelation from the Father. And then because he said it, he has been given keys to the kingdom. Then Peter, as you know, begins to, in his own mind, he has this idea of what it means you know, for Christ to be Christ. And Christ begins to tell him, well, I'm going to go to the cross and so on and so forth. Peter begins to rebuke the Lord about that. And the Lord sets him straight. And one of the things he says is, your concerns are the things of the earth rather than the things of heaven. So again, he's beginning now to do something that's wonderful. Now, what I'm suggesting is there is a process 
by which God brings us from the confession of faith, where we acknowledge him as the king, to the point where we can free people from the kind of bondage that this young person at the foot of the hill was engaged in. So it begins by him saying to him, I have given you authority, right? To make it clear to him, to verbally pronounce authority over him. And that's what God does with us. He does it with us through the word of God. He does it with us by the Holy Spirit. He does it with us with each other as we strengthen each other, as we encourage each other, as we remind each other of who we are. And then he will every now and again bring godly correction into our situation saying, don't see the world the way the world sees the world. But fix your eyes on heaven because it's the Father who gave you the revelation to begin with. And so even when Jesus begins to talk about how the Christ would save the world, at first Peter thought, wait a minute, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work because I heard stories that when the king came, he was going to do dot, dot, dot. And now Jesus is saying, no, no, let me show you how this thing works. Now, the thing about it is when we start thinking about God's authority, and his power over sin, and his capacity to change the world, and to bring people from being thrown to the fire and water and so on and so forth, we think about a power that's been defined by the world, but we are not of the world. So God says, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And we say, at first, what, wait a minute, you tell me I have authority, and I have the keys to the kingdom, and, and, and I can call you know, mountains from point A to point B? But I'm weak. Well, of course. But Peter thought strength and authority was one thing. And Jesus said, no, no, no. Strength and authority is something else. And he begins to talk to him about the cross. And he begins to talk to him about what he would suffer. And he begins to talk to him about what he would endure. And in doing so, he would change the world. In doing so, he would be in a position to save this young man. But they don't understand it, right? So they're still troubling themselves with it because for 400 years, from Matthew to Malachi, they heard that when Messiah comes, he's going to come as, as a superman, right? He's not going to come, you know, in this weakness. He's not going to come. And so I have to be a superman if I'm going to change anything. I can't change anything in weakness, right? So he says to them, I'm telling you, none of, he, he talks to certain ones particularly, none of you are going to die until you see the kingdom of heaven. Right? Until you comprehend what the kingdom of heaven is like. So six days later, the Bible says he takes them to the top of a mountain. And on the top of the mountain, he begins to reveal himself to them in a way that they had never seen. Right? The Bible says that he just began to glow like, like the sun. It would have been like looking directly into the sun. And it was another step in their development, going from this idea of what the king should be and therefore what his authority should look like and therefore what they should look like if they were exercising his authority. Now all of a sudden they're seeing something else. And they're seeing someone who doesn't have to have some strength in and of himself because we know that when Jesus manifested his power in those 33 years that he was in mortal flesh, those 33 years before his death and resurrection, 
he didn't move in the power of the second person of the Godhead. He didn't move in the power of the Son. He moved in the power of the Spirit, and he moved according to the will and the word of the Father. And so when he went up to the mountain, what they would have seen was what a human person looks like when he is under the influence of the mighty God. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but that part of him that's fully God was hidden for those 33 years. Now if you saw him, you would be looking into the glory of the second person of the Godhead. But for those 33 years of his, what we call his mortality, those 33 years when his physical body could die, he, the second person, the son, hid, and you saw the spirit, or you saw the father. That's why he said, when you see me, you see the father. And that didn't mean you literally saw the father with your eyes, but you saw the father's will being worked out. And you heard the father's words being spoken. And all of the signs, all the wonders, all the miracles, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. So all the preaching, all the teaching, everything is being done in the power of the Spirit. And now all of a sudden, you go to this mountain and you just see, this is a man, right, who is led by the Spirit and who is spoken to by the Father. And you're beginning to see something. You're beginning to see, this person could be like me. This, you know, I mean, of course, Jesus is, is Jesus. But at the same time, he chose to identify with me. And all of a sudden... I'm beginning to see what power looks like. It's not about me. It's about being led by the Spirit. It's about being spoken to by the Father. And it's about being invited in by the Son. And so he invites them to this mountaintop and he begins to manifest himself to them so that they could see what power actually looks like. This is my opinion. Now, I could be wrong on this, but this is my opinion I don't think that during Christ's mortality, we ever saw the second person of the Godhead in that kind of purity. I think what what they were looking at in that moment was the perfection of humanity and what it looks like to be a person who is truly under the authority and influence of God. And I say that because not too long after that, The Shekinah, right? The glory cloud comes upon them and the voice of the Father comes out of the glory cloud and they fall on their face just like that. So if the Son, right? The divine Son, the deity, the second person of the Godhead was being manifest to them in that moment, why wouldn't they have fallen flat on their face in the presence of the Son? You understand what I'm saying? They they would have if he was manifesting the fullness of his deity. So I think what he was manifesting was the fullness of Christ-focused, spirit-filled, God-blessed humanity and showing us what it looks like if we allow him to make us into the kind of persons that he wants us to be. Now, on this side of eternity, none of us are going to be glowing like that, right? But I think on that side of eternity, when we put off this mortality... And the only thing that's left is immortality. I think in those days, we're going to find out what it really means to be created in the image and likeness of God. What it really means to be a human being. 
We're going to find out what it really means to be loved by God and nurtured by God and filled with God and overpowered by his grace and to be modeled after his beauty. I think in those days we're going to realize what we really are. You understand what I'm saying, brothers and sisters? Think about this. Say you're an accountant, right? And you're keeping somebody's books all the time. And you, 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 know, you look at what they usually spend. And they spend this much and that much and so on and so forth. And then one day you look at their expenditure and they spent everything that they had on one thing. What's the first question you're going to ask? What did they buy? Well, God spent everything that he had on you. Everything that he had on you. He gave his life. He gave his only begotten son. Don't you ever wonder, what did he purchase? What did he buy for us? What are we? If you and I had gone to that mountain, we would see what we are. All of a sudden, we'd be recognizing that the world has told us that we're basically hairless apes that have somehow ascended from the primordial ooze and that basically all we are worth is about $2.98 worth of chemicals. But that's a lie. We are God's sons and daughters. We are the children of God and we can make a difference in this society. And so they go to that mountaintop and all of a sudden they are talking with Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah are not saying to them, well, you guys don't really belong in this conversation because we're like the superstars of the faith. And they're not asking Moses and Elijah for their autograph because they're just like Moses and Elijah. You understand what I'm saying? They don't know it yet, but they are. You and I are just like the people that we read about in our Bible. There's only one star in this show. You understand that, right? There's only one God in that book. And all the rest of us are just the same. People who worship God. People who bless the Lord. People who love the Lord. People who are fed by God. People who are led by God. People who are loved by God. People who are nurtured by God. But there's only one God. And so when we see Moses and Elijah, we say, that's our brothers. These are people like us. Right? I mean, isn't that what James says? He says, Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed and God opened up the heavens. Why? Because he believed that he was who God said he was. Remember how he prayed? He believed two things, that God is who God says he is and that I am who God says I am. That's the way Elijah prayed, if you remember when he was on Mount Carmel. Let the people know, he said, that you are the God and that you've sent me. And that's how you and I pray. Because we're not afraid to be who we are. We're not ashamed to be who we are. And we don't count it humility to denigrate ourselves and to downgrade ourselves and to make ourselves out to be what the world is trying to tell us we are. Because we are the sons and the daughters of God. And so they're talking with Moses and Elijah just the same as when you and I open up the scriptures, right? Because oftentimes people will suggest that Moses represents the law and Elijah the prophets and so on and so forth. So in this case, let it be either way that either we're reading the Bible and we see ourselves in it or we look at the champions of the faith and we see ourselves in them either way 
this is our heritage. This is our pedigree. This is our genealogy. These are our people, the people of faith. And as we allow God to reveal these truths to us, we become more and more able to descend that mountain and to do the thing that God has called us to do because our goal is to expunge that particular phrase, that particular paragraph from our lives. That paragraph that says, I asked your disciples to help me and there was nothing they could do. So they're talking and they're hearing Moses and they're hearing Elijah and then all of a sudden the glory cloud comes. Because they're thinking, you know what, this is an awesome place to be. Let's just build three tabernacles. You ever wonder why they asked for three tabernacles? Because it was the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a Feast of Booths. Right? Every year they would celebrate the giving of the law and so on and so forth. And that's what it was. It was just basically what they were saying is, it would be nice if we could just stay in this wonderful place and practice our religion. But that's not the nature of Christianity. Christianity must flow through these doors, right? Church must go with us to work. Church must go with us home. Church must go with us to school. These kind of things have to happen. So the Shekinah, the glory, right? You know, the glory cloud from way back when begins to fill the room. You know that glory cloud, right? You know what I mean? You see it way back there in Genesis and in Exodus and so on and so forth. And then you see it, of course, you see it in the book of Acts, but Jesus is caught up into the glory cloud and so on and so forth. You know, that glory cloud, right? It oftentimes represents the presence of the third person of the Godhead. Some people believe it represents, you know, um, the, uh, some manifestation of the second person. But I think in this case, it represents the manifestation of the third person. But either way, the voice comes out. And this is the voice of the first person of the Godhead, the Father speaking. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Now, when I first heard that, I thought it was a rebuke. You know what I mean? But I realized it wasn't a rebuke. It was an invitation. Listen to him. Do you realize that the greatest gift that God could ever give us is the invitation and the imperative to hear the voice of Christ? Because God speaks all the time. But so few people hear him. So few, few people feel him. Right? And here they are given a direct invitation by God the Father. Now this is not the first time this happens. All of a sudden you remind yourself that it happened already when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven, right? So all of a sudden, this is the second time. In just as many as a few verses, right, that Peter hears the voice of the father. Now, there was something that preempted that free flow for a minute or two, and that was his own understanding of what it means to be powerful. And Jesus had to say to him, get thee behind me, Satan, that kind of a thing, right? And what does that mean? It just, it just means that there is oftentimes going to be a lie coming to us. 
right? You know what I mean? And if we embrace it, it becomes a problem. But a lie coming to us that says weakness and suffering and struggling, there's no power there. Even though the Bible says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, right? So the enemy is going to come to you and he's going to lie to you. He's going to come to me and he's going to lie to me. And he's going to say, no, let me show you what power looks like. But God is going to say to us, no, 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 don't believe the lie. I will show you what power looks like. And then he's going to point to the cross. Right? Uh, of, of, of all things, by their standard, the cross, Peter, remember Peter? Remember he had all these problems with the Lord, and it seems like he was the kind of person that just kind of, you know, was you know, all over the place all the time. But if you look at his life, he wasn't. The only time he had a problem was whenever the cross came up. Like right, right there, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, right? The cross came up, and boom, that came out of him. Or remember the one time, you know, they're about to take Jesus to the cross and Peter, you know, pulls out the sword and cuts off the guy's ear, right? Or the other time where he, you know, is, you know, being asked whether or not he knew the Lord and, you know, he's like, no, 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 I don't know him and that kind of a thing. You know, it was all around the cross. It all, it all, it's always around the cross, right? But if you read First Peter, there's nobody who speaks more lovingly of the cross than Peter. But he wasn't there yet. Right now he was still over here and he had to be taught what real power is. And he had to recognize that God uses weak people. Back in those days, the cross meant that, you know, you're not worthy of being on earth or in heaven. You just kind of dangled between the two. You know, and that old passage of Scripture, cursed is him who is slain on the cross. So Peter was, remember, Peter wasn't afraid to die. My goodness. He, he pulled out a sword against the temple police, right? I mean, like somebody taking out a, a peace shooter against a SWAT team. I mean, you, you don't have any chance against the temple police. You know what I'm saying? He wasn't afraid to die in a blaze of glory. But the cross, the weakness, the pain, the suffering, the ignominy, the, the, the spitting, the, the shouting, the shame. That, you mean to tell me that's how God is going to use me to change the world? That's how God is going to use me to save the generation? That's how he's going to use me to take this person from going from fire to water and back and forth. You understand? So you and I, our first response is going to be no, no thanks, but no thanks. Right? That's why he needed to hear the voice again. That's why he needed to see the glory, recognizing that in your weakness, you may look like this to yourself, but this is how you look to God. God sees who you actually are. He sees your real strength because he is your real strength. He sees the power that you have even when you don't realize you have any power. He realizes what you can be and what you can do. And it begins by him saying to you, listen to my son. He's going to tell you how to bring church to work. Listen to my son. He's going to tell you what the kingdom keys actually are. What are the keys to kingdom living? What are the keys to making a difference in this generation? What are the keys to bringing people out of the fire? One is to not be ashamed 
of your weakness. And to not think for a half a minute that God is ashamed of your weakness. The other is to not think that God can't see who you really are under all of your struggles. That he can't see your immortality past your mortality. That he can't see your light. That he can't see your glow. That he can't see your beauty. Don't allow the enemy to tell you that God can't see you for who you actually are. Because God can see you. Hallelujah. God can see you. And don't think of yourself any different than Moses and Elijah. Elijah was a man just like us. That's what James says. And yet he prayed and the heavens were open. You talk about fire and water. <laughs> Read the story of Elijah. Right? He calls down fire from heaven, then he calls down water. Don't think you're any different than these people that we read about. Don't think you're any less than them. Don't think that your name is not on that walk of fame that you see in the 11th chapter. Your name is there too. Because you're just like them. I'm just like them. We're just like them. Right? And when you get that invitation to hear the son, don't see it as a rebuke. God knows we get tired sometimes. And he knows we, we need to be in a place like this sometimes. So when he says, listen to him, I think sometimes what that means, remember one time David is about to go to war, right? And he says, Lord, should I go out against my enemy? And the Lord said, I'll tell you what, listen. And when you hear the sound of the wind going over the top of the mulberry trees, then you move. And sometimes we come to a place like this and God will say, listen, just listen for my son. Listen for him. And right now, if you hear him resting, you rest. If you hear him singing, you sing. If you hear him praying, you pray. You hear him rejoicing, you rejoice. But when you hear him marching, you get up and you start marching. And when you see him going toward the sick and the needy, you get up and you go toward the sick and the needy. When you see him looking to do a miracle, you stretch out your hand when he stretches out his hand. Hallelujah. And you do what God does. Right? Because that's the keys to the kingdom. Now, as they're about to come down from the mountain, they begin to ask. I thought Elijah would come. You know? In other words, I thought some wonderful thing was going to happen. Some, right? Because we always talk about revival is coming, revival is coming, revival is coming. This, that, and the other. I like revival too. But man, oh man. If we had anywhere near as many revivals as we have books about revival, my goodness, we'd had enough folks to revive Pluto. I mean, we would have revived every, every planet in the solar system, right? 
But the point I'm trying to make is they were looking for Elijah in a certain way, and Jesus points to this man who, you know, who was waist high in, in, in water. You know what I mean? Eating locusts and wild honey. <laughs> but, but anyways, so he points to this man, Elijah, and it's like, that's just the guy, right? Now, of course, they had already chopped off his head. You know, but I thought Elijah was going to come and he was going to do this. It's just the guy, another guy, you know, pointing to Jesus and saying, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's all he did. That was his whole ministry. That was all he did. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And every now and again, he'd perform a baptism here or there. My goodness, I could do that. <laughs> you could do that. Any one of us, right? We could point to Jesus and say, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, maybe that is revival. Maybe when enough Christians decide to do the things that Christians do. So instead of us looking for a Superman, you know what I mean? Or some time where everything, every, you know, all of a sudden everybody just falls on their knees and every bar closes and every this and every that, you know. <laughs> That's unprecedented in all of history. But it maybe it happens once, once or twice. But the point I'm trying to stress, I don't know how I still have a job. The point I'm trying to stress <laughs> is maybe all we need to do is be people who point Jesus out to other people. And say the Lamb of God, right? That takes away the sin of the world. And maybe we can immerse a few people into the body of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And maybe we can change the world. The point I'm trying to make is Jesus points to John. And then he says, yeah, that's revival. And they did with him whatever they wanted. Meaning they cut his head off. Like, y'all still want revival? <laughs> because we'd be selling a lot of, a lot of used hats in the, uh, in the lobby, right? You know what I'm saying? Now, the point I'm making is <laughs> real revival, right, happens with real people but real people who are ready to lay it down. So he shows them, John, the same way you and I can look at the history of the church of the people who, really, who have really brought about revival. People who laid their lives down. Now, some of them, we know, I would say maybe one out of every thousand we've heard of, maybe one out of every 10,000. And then there's another 9,999, whatever that we've never heard of, but God knows them. He knows everything about them. He knows every prayer they ever prayed. He knows every testimony they ever gave. He knows every time they ever pointed to Jesus. He knows everything about them. They may never have been in anybody's book, but they're written in his book. God knows them. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, it's not about fame. It's not about fortune. It's not about being seen. It's not about being heard. It's not about the shiny lights and this and the other. It's about you and me going to our ordinary places where we work, where we live, where we go to school, so on and so forth, and pointing to Christ. 
That's true revival. So he pointed to John and he says, that's the kind of person that God is using. And they don't always get a fair shake in this generation. That's just the way that works. Then, after that lesson, after those lessons, now they go down to where the young child is. And the disciples that never went up with them, that never heard with them, that never saw with them, they could not do anything. But the ones that were with Jesus, you see what I'm saying? They stood with him as he worked a miracle. And then people began to ask, well, why couldn't we cast them out? He said, there's certain things that come out only through prayer and fasting. In other words, by talking to God, no matter what it costs. Fasting means to deprive oneself. Right? Prayer means talking to God. And when you put them together, what you have is a person who's willing to hear God no matter what it costs. That's revival. Those are the people that change the world. When I was young, I prayed a prayer. And I pray it all the time now. And believe me, there were times when it was very, very difficult to pray. It was either pray that prayer or let this thing be said about me that I want to be expunged from anything that has to do with my life. Either it's going to be said about me that when it came down to making a difference in the generation, there was nothing I could do. Or I was going to do whatever God asked me to do, whatever it costs. In that sense, right? Pentecost at any cost. It doesn't matter to me now. My goal is to do God's will. And if you and I live that way, then we can be as weak as we are and still be strong enough to move mountains. Hallelujah. 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 So we bring what we have. Now, the one, the one more last thing I want to say to you is this. It's really quick. Jesus didn't stay on top of the mountain and send them into the battle. He went with them. Just like he goes with us. You know the only difference between the Mark Hellinger Theater and Times Square Church? You. You're the only difference between the Mark Ellinger Theater and Times Square Church. It's Times Square Church now because you're here. Because Jesus came with you and he will leave with you. You see what I'm saying? And when all of us leave, it's just the Mark Ellinger Theater. Right? I mean, what makes the little juice that we drink and the little wafer, what makes that the Lord's Supper? Us. Us. We, we are the communion. Because God made us that way. Otherwise, it's just juice and wafer, right? This is just the building. Just the Mark Ellinger Theater. Until we get here. And when we get here, it's Times Square Church. When we get here, this is God's house.
You see? Jesus came with you. You didn't come here to meet Jesus. He came with you. You came here to meet other people who brought Jesus with them. He came with all of us, and we came here to worship him together. That's the only difference, right? At home we worship him. Here we worship him. But we just worship him together here. He came with you, and he will walk out of these doors with you. And he'll go back home with you. And he'll go to work with you. And he'll go to school with you. Because you are the church of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. <laughs> Praise God. All righty. I think my time is up. I do love you so, so much. I hope I can come a bit more frequently now that I'm feeling a bit better. Amen. You know? <laughs> yeah. Amen. And keep, us, keep us in prayer at Summit. We, um, we're having a good old time. I, lo I, love, I love the young people at Summit. We got some Summiteers here. I'm, I know they're hiding around the place, but they're here. I'm not going to ask them to stand or anything like that. But we're family, right? We're just one family, and we all give glory to God. You know, we're learning together. We're growing together. Now, I want to pray with you, if you don't mind. And just, you know, I, as a family, and all we're going to do is say, Lord, it is good that we be here. We need to come together in places like this and strengthen each other, right? Encourage each other. Embrace each other. Remind each other of who we are. But we also have to go back to where we work and where we live and our neighborhoods and you know you know what I mean and we and we just we just need your grace we just need you to help us to help somebody out there it's not easy but we don't have to be strong in our own strength you and I we don't have to be supermen or superwomen we could just be us and God can use us so if you want to pray Let's stand together in the house of the great king, in the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. And if you want to pray, God, help me to help somebody. Help me to move out and bring revival with me. Help me to go into a generation where the young people are being thrown from extreme to extreme. And help me to do something. I'm not trying to do everything. I just want to do something. God is speaking to your heart, brothers and sisters. You do what I do. That's the way I pray all the time. I've been in ministry almost 30 years now. And the prayer is the same. I was never strong. Never had anything in my strength. Never, ever, ever. You can begin to come as I'm speaking, please. I never had anything but Christ and Christ's brothers and sisters, Christ's sons and daughters, Christ's family, my family. That's all I had. That's all I ever needed. And I've been able to do some, de some decent things in this generation. And I'm not finished, and neither are you. So God, help me. God, help me. If you're in the balcony, I know sometimes it's a long walk, and sometimes you get down here, and we're already praying and everything. <laughs> but if God is speaking to you, I'll wait for you. I will. You come on down. Throughout this auditorium, you might have come to the altar a million times. Make it a million and one. You come on down. God is not tired of you. The devil going to tell you, oh, man, God is tired of hearing that same old prayer. It's a lie. God is never tired of you. Never tired. Say, bro, Will, I'm too shy. I don't know if I can ever. Listen, 
it's not about your strength. I'm shy. I am. I really, <laughs> my wife will tell you, I am naturally shy, but I just say yes, Lord. That's it. That's all I know. I just say yes. Right? Amen. Well, we're going to ask our choir to minister to us and to the Lord in song. And then we're going to pray together. Just ask Jesus, help me to help somebody in this generation. Give me the boldness to take what I know to be true and just point to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You know? Praise the Lord. God bless you so much. You know, the strangest thing about this is it takes an enormous amount of strength to acknowledge your weakness. And so it's a strange irony, right, that proof that you have a supernatural strength is your willingness to admit natural weakness. Proof that God is with you is the fact that you're no longer open to being deceived about yourself. For me, that's the thing that God brings me through pretty much on a daily basis. He says, have enough courage to acknowledge that you don't have within yourself the strength necessary to live out this day. And I'm not afraid to acknowledge that. I may be afraid of many things, but I'm not afraid to acknowledge that I don't have what it takes to do any good thing in myself. But God, but God, but God, but God, but God, he has never, ever, ever failed me. Never let me down. Never, ever let me down. Never, never. Hallelujah. He's been there for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll tell you a quick, I'll tell you a quick story. <laughs> the first time I was ever asked to speak, you know, because I'm, I'm literally naturally shy to the point where I couldn't, I couldn't even go to a job interview. I mean, I, I'm, I, I, I was living in the street for a certain amount of time. Some of you know my, my story. I couldn't even ask people for help. You know what I mean? I mean, I was just that shy. I just, I, my self-esteem was like sub-zero, right? You know? So God asked me to start to speak one time after I got saved in the Nina. And I came to the pulpit once and nobody was in the auditorium because the service hadn't started yet. So I just figured I'd go out there and see what it feels like. And everything in me literally wanted to run. And I'm telling you, it was a split second where I said to the Lord, I said, God, if you don't give me the grace to do this thing that you've asked me to do, I am literally going to run out of this church and I ain't never coming back. Right? And God said to me something. He made me a promise that day. He said, I'll tell you what, here's what we'll do. If you never approach this pulpit on your own. You will never be at this pulpit on your own. In other words, if you trust me, I will always be there. And I'm telling you, everything that God is asking you to do, everything he's asking you to be, he will give you everything you need. Hallelujah. That's the truth. Now, I was in my 20s then. I'm, 50, I'm 55 years old now. I've been in ministry almost 30 years. 
I, so I can honestly say, right, I'm at a stage in life where I can say something to the effect of I once was young, but now I'm old, and I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. God is faithful. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! God is faithful. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. We have our marching orders, Lord. We know that you've asked us to do what we can to make a difference. We don't need to be supermen and women. We just need to be people who point to you and say, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God, you help us. You give us strength. And we'll go forward in your name. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We bless you. I pray your hand of blessing upon my brothers and my sisters. Jesus. Speak to each one, each one of our individual hearts, our individual call. Help us to know what you're asking us to be. We don't, we're not trying to be like somebody else or do what somebody else has done. Just, just ask us what you want us to do. And then give us the strength to do it. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you so much.